Are you serious? You know, at church, we talk a lot about being dedicated to the right things. Bible study, worship, fellowship, all of those things are really important. But are we serious about it? You know, worship, for example, is much more than just a song. It's about how we live our daily lives in dedication to the Lord. Jesus put it like this, The greatest commandments are you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And so each day we have the choice to worship idols or to worship God. The time for action is now. Are you serious? Thank you, Charlie, for that challenge to us. Um, one, I would like to say it's good to have Kurt Grice back from sabbatical, wouldn't you say? Yes. And if you missed his welcome this morning, then you really missed out on maybe the peak of the whole service because Kurt was his best self and with us. And, but if you did miss Kurt, because I know we trickle in from Bible study, um, our pastor is out this weekend for a family wedding that happened last night in the Hill Country and there's really no way he and Cindy could have boogied back to be here with us. And so in his stead, he has asked me to preach, which I'm always happy to do, honored to do, and I'm glad to be here with us today. If you missed his sermon last week, the pastor preached on 1 Corinthians 12. As we're walking through this rededicate series, 1 Corinthians has been our text to walk through. If you missed it, I would say go back and listen. It's a really good sermon about using spiritual gifts to be the body of Christ together in the church together. I think we do it well as First Baptist. I think there's some great nuggets to take from that. But I also want to say, so if you heard him preach 1 Corinthians 12 last week, you know it's concerning spiritual gifts, chiefly about tongues, using tongues in worship. Next week, if you were to flip to chapter 14, which you can or cannot if you have your Bible in front of you, it begins with talking about speaking in tongues in worship. So 12, 13, and 14 kind of go together in this bracket. And when you read 13, it'll illuminate that if you know that on both sides of it is this argument with Paul and the Corinthians on tongues. So that's just a context for where we're going today. But 1 Corinthians 13, in the middle of it, like Kurt alluded to this morning, it's such a familiar passage to so many of us. For many of you, it might have been your wedding text, with good reason, because it points to the love of Christ in our lives. And so I'd ask you as we read it together today, and I'm asking the Spirit to give us fresh ears and fresh eyes and a fresh perspective on a text that can seem very familiar in our own lives. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read the whole, it's just 13 verses, but I'm going to read the whole chapter for us to get us started this morning. So 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing, says Paul. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. 
And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, but the greatest, excuse me, even as I am fully known. And now these things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. So, let, I want to get this out of the way. I am pregnant. <laughs> and as Charlie said earlier, it's the first time we've ever had a pregnant person preach at our pulpit, but to stand corrected, I preached in July uh, in my first trimester and survived that, but I preached at 12 weeks, but none of you knew it. And some of you might have known it, but didn't say anything. And on behalf of all women that are of childbearing age, we thank you for not speculating on whether someone is pregnant or not, and just keeping your mouth shut and keeping moving. So we really appreciate that. <laughs> um, but to get that out of the way, uh, I am pregnant and with triplets, all boys, so we can just go through all that. Yep, that's not why I'm here, but you're gonna notice the, <laughs> thank you for the applause. Uh, I take it as encouragement and we need it, so we'll take it. But uh, one of the, the, the realities of pregnancy is that, and if any of y'all have had a pregnancy or have journeyed with someone, is that you tend to conserve your energy and use it where you need it and then put away things that don't need it. And one of the things that Ryan and I have really capitalized on is the online grocery ordering and then pick it up in your car. You know, you just pull in, pop the back of your car, they put everything in and you drive away. Are any of you familiar with this? Yes, good. Um, and one of the things I love about it is that it saves us time and energy. Um, one of the things I don't like about it is that you don't get to pick out your own produce. Can anyone else relate to this? There's a, there's a cost benefit, which right now it is of most benefit to us, but the cost is that I don't get to look at everything, pick out the meat, pick out the produce. And so that's fine with me for now. Maybe one day I'll go back and do that. Probably not with triplets, honestly. <laughs> that won't be it. But uh, I'm usually okay with it, but one of the things that I'm more particular about is melons, because there's a certain way that, that I prefer, like if I'm gonna go pick out a watermelon particularly, I think that maybe the Walmart grocery picker outers don't take as much pride as I do in picking out a good watermelon. Because y'all may know that the most polished and beautiful and um, gleaming, looking like it's perfect watermelon, often when you cut into it, it's not that good. It hasn't been on the vine long enough. It can be um, not as sweet, not as juicy, still a little green. And what you really want out of a watermelon is one that has that like rough, I've been sitting in the field, soaking up the sun, soaking up the nutrients, like dark patch on the bottom of it. So there's a, a tip or trick if you ever need to pick out a watermelon. The best ones look like they've been sitting there for a while, where if you wanted an apple, you would never pick one with a brown spot. Anyway, I can, I can write this up and email it to, I'll, I'll tweet it to Walmart and see if they care at all. All that to say, in the context that we're looking at in, in Corinthians, I think sometimes the people of Corinth looked a little bit like a polished watermelon that hadn't been sitting on the vine long enough. From the outside, they look really good. They think they look good. They come into worship looking polished. They have these spiritual gifts. They can speak in tongues. But actually, they're, they're not inside as good as they might feel like they are on the outside. And I think when we look at this text in that context, we'll see it illuminated in a lot of ways. 
want to look at this first little bit with you. If, you. if you kept your Bibles open, that's great. If not, I'll read it for us. Paul says this, in the first person, which I think is great rhetoric, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he goes on to say all of these, if I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mystery, I can have faith that moves mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I might boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. It's a very strong rebuke Paul has for the Corinthians. And for them listening, they know, like I said, that tongues, speaking in tongues, unintelligible utterances in worship has been this dividing factor for them. They've taken this gift and elevated it above all other gifts. And most of them have come out of a pagan culture to join the Christian movement. So when they hear Paul say, you sound like a a clanging cymbal, you sound like a terrible gong. And I appreciate, was Corey in the booth today? I couldn't see him where I was sitting. Chris, it sounded great. No clanging cymbals, really good percussion. So we appreciate percussion. Yes, thank you. But, but in Corinth, in the pagan culture, they would open their worship with this big gong and it could sound empty and hollow like a clanging cymbal. So if you're a Corinthian listening to this letter being written, And Paul says, hey, you can speak in tongues all you want, but if you do it without love, you sound like that clanging gong. He's pointing them back to what they just came from, this pagan worship. He says, you actually sound empty and hollow, and you don't quite sound as good as you think you do. And I think we could stop right there, and we could reflect with ourselves on how our lives can parallel this. In what ways do we feel like we've got it all together, we strut into worship, or we strut into community, we strut into our church circles, and we seemingly have our gifts on display, and they look so polished, and they look so beautiful, but you know that on the inside, they're not expressions of God's love for the world. You're doing it for your own self-seeking nature. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, when you do that, you gain nothing. We gain nothing as a community if you're doing all of this. You sound like an empty and hollow clanging cymbal. And we have a super talented church. Wouldn't you agree? There are many gifts on display every Sunday morning, all throughout the week, behind the scenes. But Paul says something like this. You could give your whole self to the church. You could sing every Sunday. You could teach, preach, evangelize, prophesy, give everything to the poor, but if you don't do it being motivated by Christ's love, we as a community gain nothing for it. It's a convicting word. Let us never fall into the trap of building ourselves up for ourselves' sake. Everything we do has to be an expression of love or it's worthless. And we know that, but with that said, what is love? If I had to ask you, if I gave you a mic and said, hey, can you define love for us this morning? What might you say? Think about it. I won't actually bring you a mic, but think about it with me. There's a YouTube video from a couple of years ago where the producers interview 100 little kids and they ask them to answer that question, what is love? And I want to read you some of the answers. So what is love, they say to these kids. One says, isn't that a song? Which, can you picture what song that is? If you grew up... 
if you, oh, the youth know it, <laughs> although it, pre, it predates you, right? <laughs> yeah, so it was made famous by the 1998 movie Night at the Roxbury. What year were y'all born? 2005 is what I heard most prominently. So way to go, parents, for introducing your kids to Night at the Roxbury. But there's a song, and I won't sing it, but they did, and it's What is Love. So some little kid, that's the only thing they could think of is when, I, when we say What is Love, they say, yeah, that's a song, and someone wrote about it, right? Yes, great. Another kid says, I don't know, I don't know too much about it, which, fair, right? Love, and then here they go, love means like when you love somebody. It's the thing where you love people. It's when you care about someone and you live with them and you just love them. When you be nice and not mean. It feels, it's a feeling of happiness, a good feeling, a warm feeling. Love smells like flowers. Then the producers asked this one girl, where in your body do you feel love? The risky question, right? And this little girl says, mostly to my right, but sometimes to my left. <laughs> And I think we have to admit, as a church of all ages, that we might not be able to do much better than these little kids at trying to define love. It's one of those big, bold, grand things in the universe. And even Paul, I don't think in the next section in verses four through seven, is trying to define it as much as he is trying to describe it or even personify it. It's almost like when Jesus uses parables to talk about the kingdom of God. It's so great and unattainable. All we can do is point toward it, tell stories about it, give examples of it. And that's what Paul tries to do here. I want, before we read it, I want to tell you this. One mistake we can make in reading 1 Corinthians is to, to read it like it's just a proverb or a poem, something that you hang in your bathroom, in your guest room, that people can hear, and take it out of its context of this letter to the, to the Corinthians. And so I want to read it, and then I want to walk through it just a little bit. Here's one of the most famous texts in the Bible. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And if you read that in the context of what we were talking about, the behind the scenes of what's going on in Corinth, you really hear Paul calling them out. He's saying, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. And we know the Corinthians were showy, they were puffed up, they were boastful, they were arrogant. It says it doesn't Love does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps new records of wrong. But we know that the Corinthians were behaving shamefully. They were doing all of these things. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Paul is saying to them in this letter, you, th you think you're hot stuff, but you cannot measure up to this. He's holding up the true standard by which all will be judged, and that's the love of God in Christ. He holds up love, but not just this abstract, poetic love. He's holding up the love of Jesus, and he's saying, how do you really measure up, Corinthians? In Greek, love can mean several different words. In English, we just use one, which can be really problematic, because I love these shoes, 
but I also love my golden doodles, and then I also love my husband, but I also love my mom. And those are very different versions of love, but we only have one word to put it all together. Greek uses many different ones. If you had to guess what, what Greek word is behind the text on this, what might you guess with me? You can do it. It's the agape love of God, yes, which means that this word pulled out, it's really about God's love for his people. It's sacrificial, steadfast goodwill from, from Jesus toward man. And that's what Paul is trying to point out to the Corinthians. There's two commentators who make this point really well, and I want to read these to you. One is Gordon Fee, and this is what he says. Love is primary for Paul because it's already been given concrete expression in the coming of the Lord Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Love is not an idea for Paul or even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. Here's what Robert Scott Nash says about it. The love Paul portrays is not some abstract concept, but rather the concrete point where the love of God expressed in the death of Jesus becomes embodied in the lives of believers. We do his work in injustice when we de-incarnate this chapter and turn it into an ode to love. So this text is really all about Jesus. And it's all about holding up his love as the standard by which we are going to judge ourselves and certainly the way Paul was trying to judge and critique the Corinthian church. In fact, there are several commentators who say that this so personifies Jesus that we could do well by inserting Jesus instead of the word love. Let me read it like that and see if it makes sense to you. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He's not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. This passage is all rooted in the character and love of Jesus. And so for us today, if we want to define love well, we have to root it in the character and love of Jesus. Do you want to love people well? Get to know Jesus. Love like Jesus. And we can't let pop culture or emotion or fading affection define what love is for us in our lives. Paul's calling us to biblical love, to Jesus' love. And he's calling the Corinthians out on the same thing. In fact, it might be a good practice this isn't just a praise to Jesus either. If it's really a rebuke or a challenge for us, it might be good practice to put our own names in there and see how far we can get without cringing. I'll try it, I'll see how far. Katie is patient. Katie is kind. Katie, is, Katie does not envy. Katie does not boast. I think that's far enough, I'll stop there. But if you tried your name in there, does it not turn into a bit of a mirror for how we're really doing? If it makes you feel uncomfortable, I think we're getting closer to what Paul really meant for the Corinthians when he wrote this letter so long ago. It can act as a mirror, or better yet, maybe, a candid picture that someone takes of you and then puts on the internet without you knowing and tags you in it, and then you look at it and you think, I didn't know I look like that from that angle. <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable. We want to see ourselves in the best light, in the angles we choose, and in the pictures that we choose to post. 
Last, last Labor Day, Ryan's family invited us to go to the beach with them. So we went to uh, 30A Seaside. That's a popular First Baptist destination. Um, and we went with Ryan's younger siblings, who are in their late 20s. We are in our early to mid-30s. And so you don't think that's that big of a difference until you start talking about Instagram on the internet and posting pictures. So I took a picture of Ryan's brother. I thought it was very flattering of him. I went ahead and posted it. And very quickly, he was like, how dare you post this picture of me without getting my permission? And I was like, I didn't know we needed permission to do these things. So I took it down and then showed him all the pictures on my phone and said, which one would you prefer for me to post? And then he picked the exact same one. And then I posted it. And he was happy with it because this is apparently the expression of 20-somethings on the internet. All that to say, and his main point, I will say, is he's single and we are not, so we don't get it. And I would like to say to y'all, he's still single. And if you... <laughs> so if you really enjoy Ryan Hodges, but want like a younger, um, a little more country version of him, then, you know, we can give you his number after and we can talk about it, but that is not what this is about. Um, but all that to say, it is true. We want to see ourselves in the best light. We want to look at ourselves from the best angles. And every once in a while, when you catch yourself looking at a different angle or a different light or a mirror that's very well lit, it can convict us. It can tell us the truth about where we really are. Dr. Jack Goodyear spoke to the college students a couple years ago when I was still college minister. And he said something like, when you step on the scale in the bathroom and you look at the number, it's pretty easy to say, well, that's not me. But sometimes we have to look and say, this is really where we are, and this is really who we are. And so it is with this text for the Corinthians, but certainly for us today. So don't leave thinking it's just an ode to love. It's a challenge for us to love like Jesus. Lastly, I want us to look at this last part, because Paul shifts a little bit. Can I read it for you? It's these last few verses. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In this little passage I read, Paul uses the same Greek word four different times. It's, it's called katargeo, and it really means cease or be done away with. But in the NIV, he translates it four, the, the team translates it four different ways. So it can mean cease, pass away, disappear, put behind. If we read it in the New American Standard, it's easier to spot because it's a more literal translation. And I think I have it on the screens for you. This is what Paul is trying to say. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. What Paul's trying to say is that these gifts we're currently using to build the kingdom, these spiritual gifts that he's talking about, when the kingdom comes, those will be done away with when Christ returns in his fullness. 
It's like they're builder's tools. And when the, when the building is built, the tools will get put away and we enjoy the building. He's referring to the completion of when Christ returns. In fact, he uses the word complete in here, but in other places in the New Testament, it's the word for maturity. So when he's talking to the Corinthians, and he's saying when maturity comes, what we know in part will disappear. It will go away. And I won't act like a child anymore because we'll see Jesus face to face. It seems that Paul's trying to play a metaphor with the Corinthians. One, he's contending that this incomplete knowledge and prophecy will disappear when the kingdom of God comes. But then he's also calling them out for being childish. He's great at rhetoric in doing those things. So in the end, this is what he's saying. He's really talking about eschatology. In the end, the spiritual gifts will fade away. They will have sustained us until we are face to face with God. And then, living in the kingdom that has fully come, the greatest thing that matters is how we love each other. He says, these three will remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest that sustains us and will stay with us in the kingdom is the love of Christ. So for us, what is the invitation today? For the Corinthians, I think it was this. Humble yourselves and realize you're not as good as you think you are. For us today, it could be that. But I wonder if it could be an invitation to stay on the vine a little longer, like the watermelon. If you think you've got it down, if you think you look good on the outside, if you think you can show up to church and be okay, that's possible. But your inside might not be fully formed. And I would say, on this side of eternity, our insides are not fully formed to the likeness of Christ, to what we can become. Jesus makes an offer to all who follow him that we can abide in his love. In John 15, we can abide in his love like a vine on the branches. And in doing so, we can grow more and more to be like him and to love like him. In fact, I would say that's the whole point of being on the Jesus way. And so we can and we all must grow and continue to grow into Jesus-shaped people who can embody this 1 Corinthians love to a broken world even today. May it be so for each of us. And may this love be your invitation today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, wanna, we want to look more like you. We want this passage to be true about us. We want to be patient and kind and not envy and not boast. We want our love to do certain things and not do other things. And so I pray for us as your people here in Arlington today that you would give us your grace, your formation, your forgiveness so that we can look more like you, act more like you, and humble ourselves to be expressions of love everywhere we go, certainly for the building up of the church. So for each person here today, I pray that we can look in the mirror, check our angles, and see the ways in which we can conform ourselves more to you. I pray that we confess the ways that we fall short and that you meet us there and help us grow. We love you. We give this time to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.